Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Happy Hanukkah, Freilichen Hanukkah. I'd like to start out by sharing with you that a new music video is coming your way, Kol Isha. This week, I hope you enjoy it. It is in theme with our episode today about addiction. Please join the WhatsApp discussion group by messaging me and I can add you in. Also, check out the other podcasts on the Jewish Coffee House Network. There was a new episode that just dropped on Intimate Judaism, so go check that out. And shout out to Moshe from Williamsburg for your beautiful message and for sending a sponsorship for this podcast. Thank you so, so much. If you've been thinking of launching a podcast, look no further. Take my online course that will take you step by step, and I'll make sure you personally get all your questions answered. Satisfaction guaranteed. For more information, check out the link in the show notes. And on a sad note, I am sad to inform you of the passing of Rabbi Avram Yitzchak Levine, my great uncle. He was a powerhouse of a human, of a leader. I wrote a whole post and I will link that in the show notes as well. One last thing before we get started, I'd like to share a short story with you, just a little bit about the behind the scenes that goes on with this podcast. And it's such an honor to be involved in stories like these. One of our anonymous episodes just like any other episode, people are welcome to reach out and I connect them with the guest, assuming permissions are granted. So in this case, permissions were granted and the connection was made. The audience member was in a unique position to support this specific guest and a unique relationship was formed. Now this guest is going through a big life transition and this mentor has created a discrete fund that they're raising money for this anonymous guest. Unfortunately, I cannot give you any more detail why they're raising money or who they're raising money for. But if you know anything about this podcast is that some of our anonymous guests have shared some of the most heartbreaking stories in their lives and you have an opportunity to help and we actually have an organized tax deductible way to do that. So if you would like to personally contribute to this guest, please do reach out to me for information and thank you again so much for building a community around this show, around my mission of giving people a voice and bringing awareness to the stories and people in our communities. Here we go. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, France Dance. Today with us, we have Shana Schwartz on the show, and we are here to talk about addiction. Welcome, Shana. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Really such a pleasure and an honor. Tell us how long you've been sober. I have been clean and sober for seven and a half years. March 23rd, 2015 is my clean and sober date. Congratulations. Thank you. This will hopefully come out on Hanukkah at the same time as my music video together with Barry Mitzman 
And the song is to the words of Elokai Neshama. The mission or the theme in this music video is fighting addiction and just praying for those neshama, those neshamas that are lost to addiction and the fight. So thanks for joining and, and participating in this release. What a special, special thing to be doing. And I didn't know I was a part of that. So that's really special and beautiful for Hanukkah. Thank you so much. Okay, so we'll start our episode just like we do on every other show. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your religious background, and then we'll go into your story. I grew up in a Jewish community going to Jewish schools, Jewish camps, pretty much affiliated in the Jewish world. I also had a lot of what people saw and then what was actually going on in my life, which was not the same thing. So there was a lot of hiding and covering things up. I am a product of divorce. I'm the youngest of five siblings. All of my siblings went with my father. I was alone with my mother who went above and beyond, did everything she could for me. But you know, life happens and we just do the best we can. And we're all, you know, faced with struggles and hurdles and just trying to navigate that as well as trying to navigate with a little girl who was me. So there were a lot of ups and downs in our life. Throughout, I always had a close connection with Hashem and always felt like Hashem was that unconditional loving source for me. I didn't feel the unconditional loving from both parents. So I definitely felt that from Hashem, which was like what I needed to stay strong and connected. I don't say I went off the derach. I say I definitely took a scenic route. <laughs> so there was a lot of ups and downs, a lot of getting to know myself, starting in high school, experimenting, you know, with boys and drugs and things like that. And then after so I went to seminary, after seminary, I fell completely off, went to fashion school in New York City, was living that life like to the nth degree, just kind of doing my thing. Whatever felt right for me was what I did. And that's how I pretty much lived my life. And then the void, as it always does, came into my life so prominently. And I started searching again. And through a couple of ups and downs of experiencing, connecting, pulling back a little bit, I slowly and meaningfully began to rebuild a relationship with Akadosh Baruch Hu in my own personal, meaningful way. That's so beautiful to hear. Let's go a little deeper into your life. So you mentioned you are a child of divorce, and I'm just going to assume for our audience, they're thinking, okay, divorce, what other things can we blame addiction on here? And, and people love to attribute addiction to trauma. And I, I would just like to open up your story a little bit more or paint a more colorful picture to just see all the different things that added to the roller coaster of a life that you have lived and are living. Take it away. All right. So, I mean, I like the way that you approached, like the way that you said it. I think there's a lot of misconception, at least my personal opinion in terms of addiction. A lot of people place a lot of effort and emphasis on looking at where it's from. What, where it stemmed from, is it genetic? When did it start? What was the trigger? I think it's good to know maybe where it was 
triggered only as like a jump off point. It's not a point for like extensive exploration. It's really just like, yeah, there were times in my life as a child, both by being exposed physically to drugs and alcohol in an unhealthy way through family and friends that I chose or people that I experienced, but it's also just seeing throughout my life that my reactions to experiences and difficulties and trauma was markedly different than other people's. So the way that I responded was to go internal or the way I responded was to build a new mask in order to hide what I was feeling or who I really was from those around me in order to maybe fit in, feel less judged, not stand out in whatever way from whatever place I was at. That was a lot of, there was a lot of that, which is we learn in, I'm in the program of Narcotics Anonymous. There's Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and a million other anonymouses. <laughs> I personally got clean and am clean through Narcotics Anonymous. So there's the idea that addiction is not really so much about what you use or how much you use, but about like the inability to stop and kind of what goes on in our head as a result of our disease of addiction. So it's really very little to do with the actual drugs. It's to do with the way that we look at the world and the way that we, once we start a behavior, our inability to stop it. So that happened far be before I ever even tried drugs. Well, when was the first time you noticed the addictive behavior? Sure. So yeah, I always go back to this time when I was in my, I was at my dad's house for the summer and I was in his bathroom And all of a sudden I went to close the door and I saw on the back of the door, there was a teeny piece of paint that had like chipped off. And in my mind, something switched and I just started peeling all the paint off of the door. And like, I was six years old, peeling all of, with my fingers, not thinking. And at 45 minutes later, my father walks in and he's like, Shana, what on earth are you doing? And I literally snapped out of it. Like I was under a trance. I didn't even remember doing it. It wasn't like a physical choice. I'm going to continue doing it. It's just like something about starting something and not having to stop felt so good and, and cathartic for me that I just kept doing it. And that I always talk about in my program, like that's the first feelings of addiction before drugs or alcohol ever entered my life. So take us through the next significant event. Yeah. So there were times in my life, as I kind of mentioned, where on the outside, we were acting religious and we were not. And the, the amount of masking that I had to do and the amount of dysregulation that I felt as a result of doing that, like I wasn't allowed to have people in my house because there were certain things that we were doing there that they were not allowed to be doing. Like what? Like there wasn't kosher in the house. There were people in the house where, that were not up to standard with the people that I went to school with. I went to school with rabbis' daughters. And like in our house, there were like Arab people who were not religious and there was not kosher food. And there was bread on Pesach on our counter. Half of our counter was, had bread on Pesach and half of our counter had our matzo ball soup and had our matzo with the cream cheese. Like this is the kind of life that I let I led like I would go to like hardcore Chabad schools and then on the weekend I'd get sent to like a sleepaway camp where we were like jamming out on the guitar on Friday night after dinner you know like those feelings of contradiction in my life 
I don't know that they caused my addiction, but I know that they caused a ton of unmanageability and disorientation in terms of who am I and what is my Yiddishkeit? You know, what is consistency? Take us through your scenic route. How about that? <laughs> Take us on a drive. Buckle up. <laughs> in high school, I'm in a really, really beautiful all-girls Jewish high school, Valley Torah High School here in the Valley. And your parents are Bali Chuba? That's like a whole nother thing. My father is Jewish, was born Jewish. My mother converted. My parents met each other in high school when my mother was not Jewish. They got married at the Chapel of Elvis in Las Vegas. <laughs> and then my mother started learning about Judaism and converted behind my father's back and converted conservative. And my father, even though he was not religious, the only affiliation to Judaism he had was like, he was kicked out of every elementary school in LA, but the only school that he was accepted to was Rev Simcha Wasserman's school here. So he was like, he wasn't religious, but like you absolutely were not going to be conservative married to him. If you do Judaism, you do Orthodox. Yeah, he's Yashar, like super lit fish Yashar. Like he would make Kiddish on Friday night with this heavy Polish accent, and then we'd turn on the TV and watch a movie. <laughs> and how old were you when this was happening? That was always. That was always. Okay. Yeah. So you grew up into it. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up when we were exposed to Yiddishkeit. It was Yashar. It was Litfish. It was straight. But like we weren't doing everything we knew about. Which is very common for families who are in the process of becoming more observant. And now my mom is way more from than my father. <laughs> That's how that goes. It sounds like an unstable environment. Let's just call that for an adolescent mind. What's your first interaction with your choice of substance? My drug of choice is marijuana. But my first interaction was with alcohol. I think I went to a party and me and some friends, I think it was Purim because we were all dressed up. So it was like beginning middle of 11th grade because that's when things started really taking a turn. Exploring with boys, exploring with my identity, getting my belly button pierced but behind my parents, my mom's back at Venice Beach, California. <laughs> really sketchy. I'm lucky I didn't get any crazy diseases. <laughs> Basically, we went to this party and I remember the first thing someone offered me was an orange juice with vodka. And I remember every time I'd get another cup of it, it would turn like less and less orange and more and more white. And then I just don't remember anything else of the night except waking up in a bathtub and like someone had had to like pour water on me like from the bath the shower in order to like basically revive me. So that's foreshadowing to how I use drugs and alcohol from my first time. Like I was never able to have a glass of wine ever since then until I stopped using. So it was like that. And then the other time was I went to Venice Beach and we smoked. And that was my first time smoking. I'd been very against it because I have family members. I have people in my life that smoke. I'm from LA. So it's kind of a rite of passage around here, supposedly. And I'm not speaking against weed or alcohol. I just know that for me, I don't have the privilege of doing those things. So again, I'm not like I would never want to tell a person to or not to do something. I think everybody has their own journey. And different ways of refua, you know, like I think weed can help a lot of people. Cancer patients, it helps people with severe anxiety. You noticed right away that other people could sort of make a decision to stop and you couldn't? Totally. 100%. There was never, I mean, 
when I started, it wasn't like I started and then was doing it every single day, all day long. But when I did do it, I could not stop until I was practically passed out. What's it like being in that? Being high or being or being in that place where you can't stop? Yes, the uncontrolled. Do, do you like it? You enjoy it? Do you feel like you need more? Like, what are the feelings and thoughts that happen when you're in it? I think you, ha- you have to break it down by different times of your using. In the beginning, when you're using and you can't get enough and you get that feeling of like, you're not just getting a rush from being high, you're getting a rush from getting more. And that feels good. That feels good to itch that scratch. But over time, when it goes from being something that feels good and exciting to run after to something that you have to do, it becomes very overwhelming and overpowering and like very hopeless. And it's very scary. And and alone, you feel alone. Are you talking about when you've had one puff or I don't know how you consume marijuana? It's okay. <laughs> or, or one drink? Or is it when you're sober and you want it? Because you've mentioned both. It's both. I mean, you have, when you take the one puff, it's over. That's why I'm not able to ever even take one drink now. Because they say in the program, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. Because you just, you can't stop. Once you've started, you've awoken this monster in you. And it's just like this passive cycle that you are not able to stop. And then also the obsessive, and that's the compulsion. So the obsession is about like when you're not high, how am I obtaining it? How am I keeping it? How am I storing it and stashing it and separating it so I have enough for today and tomorrow and the next day? But then you use it all in one day and then you have to figure out how to get more than it. You know, it's all this unmanageability and obsession. So when did it go from something that was accidental to intentional using? I mean, the minute that I used, I knew I was never going to be able, like whether I had consciously made the decision that I'm never going to use successfully or not, there was somewhere in my mind that the minute that I used and I got out of the way that I was feeling without drugs and I was all of a sudden this like free and clear, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care if I have to look this way in front of this group of people or be accepted by that group. It was like that was that feeling of finally taking a deep breath and feeling accepted by myself, regardless of what others was like so good. I knew I was going to always need it in one one capacity or another, whether it's a drink at a simcha, whether it's smoking before I go to a social event, whether it's whatever it was, I didn't at all think it was going to turn into a crippling disability that was going to take over and infest every aspect of my life. But I did know this is something I want in my life as a fixture. Take us through getting to a point where you understand you need external help. You will not be able to live a functional life that you want if you don't seek out that help or if there's a rock bottom event, one or more. In the end of 11th grade, when I started to expose myself to the drugs, I started to then expose myself to the lifestyle, let's say, friends, I started bringing people closer to me that were doing what I was doing and pushing people away that were not doing what I was doing, which is the natural manifestation of changing your lifestyle towards that direction. And I made friends with these people and we were all having so much fun. And then I experienced death for the first time. My friend passed away. It's to this day, we don't know what it was, but it, it may very well likely have been 
a drug overdose. He was in a tent with my other close friend in upstate New York camping. And my friend woke up and he, our best friend was laying next to him who had passed away. And that was when I was 16 and this boy was 17 years old. And that was the first time I remember when I found out that night, I was the first time I broke into my mother's liquor cabinet and drank everything I could find and just started walking down the street and was basically walking down the, like the middle center divider of like a busy street, not caring, not caring. And then finally my friends came to find me, picked me up, brought me home. But like, that was a huge turning point and a first, I don't know if you want to call it a rock bottom, but like a first big Im- impactful moment. I then went to seminary and that friend who had found the guy passed away. He went through an immense amount of pain, which we all tried to help him through, you know, imagine that. And so he did a lot of drugs and we would have to come, we would have to call the paramedics on him. We'd have to put our fingers down his throat to make him throw up the drugs. He was basically indirectly trying to kill himself throughout the whole year of my seminary year. And we were trying to constantly play a referee to keep him alive. And these were all Jewish firm kids? From, from kids. These The kid that passed away is from a huge family in a very, very from community in New York. Both of them are from, from, from families in Crown Heights, like big, huge communities we're talking. And huge families too. I would never say their names, but like big families we're talking about. And I made other friends. I became very, very close with a guy also from that community at that time. We'll call him Sammy because we're not going to say his name. (laughs) I became super close to Sammy. I came home from seminary. I ended up moving to New York City. I started going to fashion school all the while like smoking and starting to take Klonopin as a result of anxiety and starting to build habits in each of those areas and learning how to implement them effectively. Smoking all the time. When I drank, I drank too much when I went out. Klonopin was like constantly in my purse. What's that? Klonopin is a drug that is used for anxiety. So it was prescribed or it's off the streets? No, no, it was prescribed. I for sure got it also. They say cop in the street, we say cop it. I also copped it on the streets for sure. Like when your prescription is up, you get a 30 day prescription. And when you use your 30 day prescription in eight days, you still have 22 days to fill up your day, to fill up your month, you know? So you gotta find it other ways. So I definitely got it from other people illegally, definitely. And then was just it was kind of this mosaic and I was also exploring other drugs acid mushrooms you know all these other drugs I was snorting painkillers you name it I was trying it I always say it's an actual miracle that I never tried heroin because I for sure would have been the person to do that like cocaine was never my interest because I as you can hear I'm a very vivacious like I (laughs) yeah I sound like I'm on cocaine and I'm not So like weed and Klonopin always kind of brought me down to be even with everyone else around me. So cocaine, when I tried it a handful of times, was like, okay, this is what I'm not trying to be at all. And thank God I never tried those other drugs that really bring you down like heroin and, you know, the other stuff where you're just out. You can literally be out for hours and hours. So Klonopin definitely had that effect and it it was effective in a lot of ways because when I was in 
college, I did start experiencing anxiety on a really real and visceral level. I started having severe panic attacks. I'm, I'm a very type A intense personality and I like things done perfectly. And I was doing everything perfectly there. I was on Dean's List. I had an internship two years in a row, which was the first time in the school's history at Bergdorf Goodman. I was in school for visual merchandising. Anyone who's from New York knows what Bergdorf Goodman is. <laughs> People from LA don't really know it because it's like a one, one store, but it's like historic. And if you're working there during Christmas and holiday time, like doing those Fifth, Fifth Avenue windows, like that's the place to be during that time. So that was my internship twice in my like college career. And I love that. But the problem was, even though I was excelling, objectively, I had people around me, like family members who were constantly making me feel like it wasn't enough and that I needed to be doing better. And that like feeling of not acceptance, not good enough, not doing it right enough, not working hard enough. Even though I was working my tail off, I couldn't do any more physically. It just like that spun me out and I would start having severe, severe anxiety like one time I had a panic attack in the subway and I fell and my foot, my leg fell in between the little space between the subway car and the platform. And literally someone picked me up and if they wouldn't have picked me up, the train would have moved and crushed my leg off, like cut off my left leg. Another time I had a panic attack so bad, I was physically unable to move. I was like a log on Fifth Avenue. People were walking over me until I finally like crawled myself to the side and called 911 for myself. That always bothered me. New York City could have somebody collapse and people just keep walking. It's, it's just so scary. It's really, it is. I mean, that's that, that tells about our culture too in our society now, you know? Like it's our responsibility to look around. It's, it's also the density culture where you have less people. There's more of a sense of, I make a difference, whereas when there are millions of people, you're just a speck. I mean, it's also really sad that we look around and there's so many homeless people that when you see someone on the floor, you almost don't even look twice anymore. Well, I would love to talk about that with you more if if we have time at the end. I, yeah. I would like to hear more. Okay, let's go more through your timeline. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. So at this point, I'm getting hospitalized multiple times. And then my friend Sammy overdoses on heroin. And that was a huge rock. bottom. Yeah, I don't I don't say rock bottom because your bottom is where you stop digging. You just keep digging, you're gonna keep hitting new bottoms. You'll go all the way to China. You know what I mean? It doesn't end until you choose to end it. I had so many bottoms in my life and I continued to just pick up the shovel and keep on digging, you know? So like my, my second friend dying and I'm only 20 years old, like. This should be an indication that the life I'm living and the people that I'm around, we're not doing the right thing. Something's wrong. I went on medical leave from school. I never went back to college. My anxiety took over. My depression took over. My mom had to physically remove me from my apartment in Brooklyn. I moved in with her. I was not able to move, work, go to school, interact, socialize. I just woke up. I used drugs. I got back in bed and I went to sleep like for six months straight. So this was like pretty much the darkest time of my life. And that was in your mother's home? And how did you get drugs? So I had my clonopin, which I would get from my, from my doctor. And then I also would just, I would only get out of my house to go get more drugs. 
And I manipulated my fam, my mother to like explain to her that it was the only thing that was basically keeping me alive. I tried to start therapy, but like, I wasn't, I didn't want to help myself. I just wanted to like basically wither away. Like I didn't want to actively kill myself, but I didn't really want to live. And where did those feelings come from? Because you say on one hand, it was a wake up call when your second friend died. And on the other hand, now it is. Then it wasn't. Oh, then you were just going along and life was just happening. Totally. I had zero co-op to analyze my life, to recognize, like to look, to pull back enough to take a look at what was going on. So it was just happening. And I was like feeling like I was in like a tide pool where I just kept getting hit and hit and hit. And I just could barely even come up for air. Right. So I basically for six months was in my mom's house, was like haphazardly trying to help myself and not really helping myself just numbing, 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 using, using, using. Like to the point I couldn't eat without using. I couldn't use the restroom without using. Like it was really, really, really bad. My mom would come home, rush home from work so that she could feed me because she knew I didn't eat until she would come home. Someone gave me The Committed Life by Robinson Young Grace, that book. And I read it to co cover to cover in like eight hours. And at the end of that book, it says that it showed like her secretary's number and it shows she was head of the Hinani. So I started reaching out, no one answered. And I literally called them like 17 times in one day till she finally was like, hello, who are you? <laughs> Not the rabbit thing, right? um, I'm talking about her secretary. She, I said, I need to speak with this Robinson. I don't know her, but I need to speak with her right now. And she's like, we are in Manhattan. We have a sheer every Thursday night for Parsha come. And afterwards, like it's first come first serve to meet with the Robinson. Fast forward, we did it. Like I got dressed up. I tried to like look my best for this. We wait, we're sitting there. And finally at like 10 at night, I'm like exhausted from like not having used for a couple hours already because we were in the year. And we go in and Rebison Young Grace looks at me square in the eye. And she's sitting, she sits, she would sit in this like really magnificent chair in this like beautiful office. And she's like, she's like, I see you. I see you. You put yourself together. You have your beautiful bow, but you are broken. I'm going to cry talking about it. And she turned around and she pointed to her, I think it was her grandfather. And she said, my grandfather gave me a koach that I can see into a neshama. And your neshama is so broken, Shana. And the only thing that's going to heal it is Torah. And I can't tell you how important it is, nothing else will heal your neshama like Torah. And I had never been seen like that. It's equal parts not being judged and being judged effectively. So we talk about like an awakening. That was for sure a huge awakening for me. The next day I actually booked a one-way ticket to Israel to go to seminary. And it was like such a hard thing for me to do because I physically did not want to fight for myself but to hear someone else say that like there's hope it was like a little teeny teeny eye of hope for me that made me feel like okay maybe maybe there's something maybe we can work with this and I got to Israel I went to a two-week program on the Bay, which was amazing but when they found out my using was what it was they're like you need to go to rehab and I was like no no I'm fine <laughs> they're like you're not fine <laughs> So hold yeah. on. After that Parsha evening with Robinson Young Grace, you just had to you find out about this two week program that was happening the next day. I was online. I was looking for programs and my mom has always been like borderline 
enabling, but we'll call it super, super, uber, uber supportive my whole life. When the unconditional love always came from my mother. She's always been there for me and she continues to be there for me throughout. I went to that seminary. It was an amazing environment. Just to backtrack, just like I also was 5150. I don't know if you know what that is. Do you know what that is? When you're deemed a, a harm to yourself or to others, people around you can put you in a mental institution on a 72 hour hold where they need to assess your safety. So my family saw how much I was using and drinking and driving and not eating, and they deemed me a danger to myself and collectively put me in a mental ward for nine days. So that was like another level. That was like right before I went to Robertson Young Grace. After I got out of that, I was like, let's figure out something, like something else needs to change. That was like a huge part also of like what made me look elsewhere. So yeah, I was basically in seminary for two weeks and then I moved to a different seminary that was Baruch Hashem, very welcoming and happy to have me, Sharim. And they're also in Harnof. They're like a little, they're a smaller shop, like a little more low key, but so incredible. And I was there for a year and a half, 18 months. My using, I didn't smoke regularly. I think I did maybe once or twice while I was there. It wasn't like, but my drinking had slowly, it had, it wasn't around and I was working on myself. And I can, I say with confidence, I could never have done what I did in my program if it wasn't for like the stepping stones that I built in Eretz Yisrael and Sharon. Like I went to therapy once a week. I was working out a ton of trauma that I had from past relationships. There was a lot of emotional work that was done there to really prep and prime me for then the sobriety route. But that wasn't enough because I was still using in Israel. So like just doing the mental and the Yiddishkeit work was not enough for me. Like I was still having such a hard time. So I was in Israel and I slowly started to experience like pretty bad experiences similar to what was going on in America. Different, but similar, you know, like I used too much and a guy was willing to give me a ride. And the next thing I know, this like supposedly from man has his hand up my shirt and I look to my right and there's a car seat sitting there. Like, and I'm like, where am I? Like, how did I even get here? And Baruch Hashem, like that was the end of it. But like the next day I had to like debrief with my rabbits and like, what just happened? She was like, Shana, you were assaulted. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound normal. Like that doesn't sound like a kind of experience I want to be having here. So there were all these little, you know, we talk about the rock bottoms. They weren't my bottoms, but they were little awakenings. Like something's not right. Hashem's telling me something's not right. I went through a year and a half of Israel. I came back from there. I lived in New York for a year. I liked it. I didn't really connect to the New York community at that time and way in my life. I'm like very, I don't know. It was just, I'm from LA. I'm an LA girl. That's why. I'll leave it at that. And I moved here. I moved to LA. I moved into a seminary house called Jewish Roots, which is like Rabbi Quinn and Rabbi Bloom are like the coolest rabbis and also just the coolest dudes, like unconditionally loving and supportive of these girls going through their process. Lived there for about a month and a half and going to Minchan Marav at Shul on Shabbos and being super from and wearing tights and like not listening to not Jewish music, but like Friday night at 10 p.m. when everyone's asleep, I'm on the roof smoking a joint. (laughs) Here we go again, like the side by side life, you know, like all over again, like 
looking around like, wait, am I supposed to be hiding from Hashem? Am I supposed to be hiding from Rabbi Quinn, from my roommates? Like, who am I? Am I hiding from myself? Like, what's, where am I right now? And that was like such a reality check, but still not enough. Then I started dating in LA and I was like, that's it. A dating girl doesn't smoke. Fine. We're going to stop smoking weed. We're going to have Klonopin when we need it. We're going to stop smoking weed. We're going to figure it out. We're going to figure out how to use successfully. Just going to drink a little bit. So day one, I have like a cute little tumbler, like I always see on Instagram, like just one with a cute little ice cube. Fine. Day two, my tumbler is chock full of <laughs> Jack Daniels. Day three, I am in a parking lot at 12 a.m. in the middle of the night on a Saturday night drinking a huge bottle of alcohol with another girl, like for no good reason. That Saturday night, we're drinking the whole night in this random parking lot. And at 6 a.m., she has to go make her shift. She worked at a bagel shop and I was driving her there and I basically crashed my car. I crashed over a stop sign and a pole. And that was my bottom. That was where I stopped digging. That's where I retired my shovel <laughs> and got out of my car and was trying to push my car with the wheels completely crunched under my car with this other girl outside screaming on the top of her lungs. It was just a complete scene of chaos. And I was still not aware. I wasn't like, this is, en this is enough. I went to the ER. They gave me anxiety medication. I got discharged from there. And I had met another woman in the program just a few days prior who brought me in and it's a mentor, like a mentor. And she brought me to a meeting. She's like, do you want to go? And I was like, no. And she's like, should we go anyway? I'm like, yeah, let's go anyway. And that first day, that first meeting, I was just like hysterically crying out of control, out of my mind and just able to like feel finally for the first time that I could just be myself and hear a message that relates to me that I don't feel alone, that I'm not what I've been feeling my whole life, not only with the drugs, like we're saying, like just with everything is not only me and what a, what a relief it was, but I was such a wreck. <laughs> like actually physiologically, I was a wreck. I was going, I had like severe physical withdrawals and anxiety withdrawal. So like before it gets better, it gets worse. Like when you're treating your acne or whatever you're doing, you know, it always gets worse before it gets better. It's the same with drugs and alcohol. So I got clean and my anxiety was like at a all-time high. I was carrying around essential oils and moonstones, and <laughs> like literally everything trying to like keep my juju together because I knew I couldn't use. So I went to three meetings a day for like three weeks. My story is not, I never went to rehab. I kind of like created my own rehab. I went into a sober living and then I went to meetings all day and I took time off of work. I got super in the program and my first year of recovery in the program was like really, really impactful and really helped me and laid my foundation for the rest of my life. So, And you've been clean ever since? I have been clean ever since. That's incredible. So no alcohol and no marijuana, no anti-anxiety medication? No. I mean, I'll tell you one thing is that anti-anxiety and antidepressant and even like pain medication, they're not off the table, 
they're just something that you absolutely have to be doing with complete intention with your doctor's clear awareness that you are an addict with your sponsors direct and very intimate guidance like when i gave birth to my first and second child and they sent me home with norco it went straight to my husband and i would call or text my sponsor before anytime i wanted it it's not that you cannot use those things but you have to absolutely have you can't trust your own mind i don't trust my own mind when it comes to drugs and alcohol yeah it's powerful to hear you say that you've dealt with it and now you can trust it it's like no that's the blanket statement for your life I wanted to ask you about messing around with boys and drugs. Everyone was from from families. You've said prominent families. And you're saying messing around with boys. What do you mean? <laughs> what do I mean with messing around? I, um, we to... have people here from those prominent yeah. families listening to this episode. And they're thinking, you know, nobody likes to think or ask for details. But when we're saying messing around and you have from kids, they all know they're all coming from from families. What are we talking about? That's my question. So are you ta- are you talking in regards to boys and girls? Or are you talking in regards to drugs and alcohol? Are you talking in regards Both, to- but specifically sex. Yeah. No, it's an important question. It's an important question. And it's something that because it was not brought up enough in my life, I suffered greatly for. I mean, starting out, any male attention felt amazing because I didn't understand what it was. I went to Jewish school and from school and all girls school my whole life. And then having friends that were guys was awesome. And then having friends that were guys that turned into guys that liked me and started texting me and whatever it was, like, was even better. I mean, you name it. I had the craziest situations. I met a boy when I went to visit my friend out of town and, like, decided he was my boyfriend. And he was going to school out of town, too. And was we were talking and we were boyfriend and girlfriend talking every night while he was in Skokie Yeshiva. Like we're talking about from Yeshivas, you know, and I was in my school and he was texting me and we were calling, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And then we broke up and he got so hurt that he wrote my name and number in the bathroom stall in Skokie Yeshiva. And for a year later, a year, I was getting prank called. Hi, are you who we think you are? Blah, blah. And I literally had to change my number. It was very, it was not a fun situation. That's just the PG version. Then you get into like boyfriends and then you get into like being pushed through people pleasing to do things that you never wanted to do or things that you thought were appropriate that were absolutely not appropriate. Give me examples. What do you mean by people pleasing? People pleasing meaning like you're in a in a situation like you're in a relationship with a boy or, or he takes you out on a date and you think like, okay, so we're on a date and maybe we'll kiss. Fine. But like, we both go to Jewish schools. Like, there's no way he's going to push me to do something, like, super inappropriate. Like, yeah, maybe we can kiss or a touch or whatever. But, like, he's not going to give me a guilt trip because I'm not going to, like, go darn near all the way with him. You know, like, that wouldn't happen in this situation. And then when it does and you're not equipped, not equipped because people don't talk to you in your life growing up. What is what is that? And what is standing up for yourself in that scenario? Because parents don't want to acknowledge that that would be something that their child would be in. It's scary to think that my little Chayla would ever be in the backseat of a car with my sheep. You know, like you don't want to think that that's what's going to go on. But you need to prepare to a certain degree and with intention how to take care in the chinuch of your kid if and when it is a possibility. And maybe it's not talking specifically about that situation, but maybe it's about building their character and strength to be able to say, I'm not comfortable with this and I don't like this. So situations like that, like for me, were 
very, very often, happened a lot, and I was pushed to levels that I did not want to be pushed to. I mean, we don't call we didn't call it like rape or assault or whatever. We were kids and we were dumb and we were in high school and like if I got pushed to do a little bit more than I wanted to do, like that was the way it was. You know, it's different times now. But all those things led to like me lowering ex- lowering self-esteem and self-trust and self-love. Because like if someone else can decide for me what I want versus me being able to be a strong enough person to decide for myself, you have no self-esteem when someone else holds that that power, you know, and especially when it's with boys in high school. Forget it. All bets are off. <laughs> And when there's drugs involved or money that needs, oh, what? It. How did that impact? I mean, it's was it worse? Every, or it's is worse. It like you don't know the person. You can know someone so well, and the second they smoke weed or they drink alcohol, they're a different person. I saw that so many times. Guys that were the sweetest guys, even girls that were the sweetest girls, they drink alcohol and they became monsters, scary people. Like, I'm not kidding you, like physical altercations with their friends and family, like making really dumb choices, like wanting even the idea of like, and I know people do it all the time, but it's so bad. And I'm so sensitive to driving, like driving in a car after you've drank drank too much or smoked. I got news for you. It's not only drinking. When you're impaired and you're driving on a highway and there's a van in front of you on the Belt Parkway with a three-year-old and a five-year-old in a car seat and you run into them and kill that family because you had too many drinks, is that worth it? We become different people with that stuff. Even though you think you're in control, you're not. You're never. You can't. That's the whole point. You do it to lose control. You don't do it to like enhance your control. (laughs) Have you ever felt unsafe? I mean, you've mentioned a car accident. You've mentioned being assaulted in Arsisrael. Yeah, many, many times for sure. Feeling like I was overdosing for sure. Feeling unsafe around other people, being in unsafe like neighborhoods late at night because I was trying to get drugs. Yeah, many, many times. Did you feel like when you wanted help, it was easily accessible and you knew where to find it and it was actually helpful? I mean, I feel like Hashem absolutely intervened. Because I did not ask for help. If it was up to me, I'd probably still be using. I did not have the wherewithal or the knowledge about the program to ask for help. Kaddish Baruch who put that person in my life 72 hours before I got I crashed my car to expose me to the program, tell me about it in an indirect way. And then when push came to shove, like she was like, well, do you want to go to a meeting? And that was what saved my life. Because if it was like, I would never have like Googled Narcotics Anonymous. Do you think it's dangerous to marry religion and religious purpose with a sober life? Because you've mentioned how it's they're together and how one wouldn't have happened without the other. Do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's because that my question is if you have doubts about your religion or you're frustrated with Jews, then are you throwing sobriety out? That could happen anyway, one with the other. Is it a strong foundation to put them together? Two things. First of all is I could not have gotten clean without doing the work that I did on Yiddishkeit and my mental health in Israel. But once I got clean, I did not keep any halachos whatsoever. Not dafka. I just stopped. Anything that got in the way of me staying clean and being connected so if that meant eating a cheeseburger out at two until 2 a.m. with my friends at Denny's, that's what I did. If, it, if that's what it was going to take for me to stay clean and sober, because I believe like 
when we say Derek Eretz Kadmala when we talk about the way that like you need to take care of Hashem's beings, whether that's us, you, my body, that stuff needs to happen before I initiate any Torah. Because I have news for you, it's not going to happen. It's not going to stay. You're not going to be able to implant roots if you don't have a strong foundation. So all the times where I tried to get firm throughout my life and it never, ever worked, it never held, was because my I had a very faulty foundation. As soon as I got clean and started to build roots, and step one is admitted that we're powerless over our addiction and our life had become unmanageable. And step two is coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And not everybody in the program says that their step two is talking about Hashem or God, because some people are atheists. I do believe that it's a Kaddish Baruch Like I absolutely do hand over my will and my life to the power, a power greater than myself, who I choose to call Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch you know? And like, without that connection, there is no way I'd be able to be clean and sober today. But I do believe that there is a separation in terms of really acknowledging and understanding your addiction and addressing and fighting it. It comes before any Torah implication. Okay, that's what I wanted you to say. Thank you for that. Would you say there's this all or nothing mentality with the from at risk population? Take teenagers when when they are experimenting or they are off, then it's everything is game versus the way you described your first experience of feeling addicted is it was everything together. There was no step by step. Would you say Everyone has that experience when they are throwing halachos at the window because they're experimenting or going through something or whatever it is. I think it's so hard to say why each person goes through what they go through. But what's the mentality? Why, is, why, it, is, it why person... is it when when you're having an interaction with a guy for the first time or you're trying drugs for the first time, you won't necessarily go with the safest option first. You, you'll go all the way or... You'll go from, oh, if I could touch, then I could have sex versus base one, base two, or drug one, drug two, drug three, heroin is last. Mm -hmm. I mean, the short answer is because I'm an addict and I don't do anything a little bit. <laughs> I don't know how to do anything in increments. So that's why anything I do, I do. I jump in the so event. my question is, did you find that other people also have that experience when it came to not observing halacha? Well, the people that I was around were mostly addicts, so yeah. <laughs> and the people that were not were able to kind of backtrack, like when they realized that things were getting dark and, and twisty in our lives, they were like, mm, maybe this is probably not the derech I really had planned, you know, and they were able to backtrack. For me, it was like, let's go, let's crash this car, let's keep it going, you know, the fa the faster, the fur more furious, the more intense, let's forget, let's Mom, you know, you got sober, you got married. Talk to me about your healing life, your journey on recovery. Wow. Yeah, I got clean. I had a year clean. I was going to Shabbos meals and I was like super connected to Yiddishkeit as I always was, but I wasn't practicing. Someone called me and was like, I have a guy for you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I don't, we haven't touched base in a while. There's a lot going on. <laughs> like it's probably not the time to be read a shidduch. I'm sitting here in my ripped jeans and like my tank top, like probably not. She gave him my number anyway. Like when I talk about like and like Hashem doing for us in like the most roundabout scenic ways rather than straightforward ways that happened in my life, like that I, these undeserved gifts, my husband is 1000% and 
an undeserved gift. Like I was given this incredible person with the strongest neshama who literally every one of his mila so perfectly matched my chesronos, like, and vice versa. His chesronos match my mila's. We are in this dance and it is hard and we fight and we scream and we have a hard time, but we love each other. And the feeling when I look at my husband that like, wow, Hashem knew. Like he literally created you for me and me for you. He also struggles with this disease and has been sober for over five years. We struggled together. He struggled a little longer after I did throughout our engagement even. And there was a lot of emuna and bitachon around that, which was like very challenging. What do you mean by that? I mean, the idea of like, am I supposed to be with this man? Like you, you know, like in the program, we talk about all or nothing. So like if I'm doing nothing and my fiance is doing all, like it should be black and white. So every day looking in the mirror and deciding like, okay, today I still love him. And today he's using, but today I'm still with him. And like Hashem is going to tell me when enough is enough. And there were a lot of very painful moments throughout that time, which were like, okay, we're getting close to the point where enough's enough. And like, I might have to not marry you. But Baruch Hashem, we got married and he has not used since 30 days before we got married. It was an absolute nace and he just stopped. We got married in Israel. We had like a 34 person wedding, literally overlooking the hotel, like just the most holy, beautiful. The opposite of the chapel in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I love it. <laughs> so Baruch Hashem. And, you know, very soon after we welcomed our first daughter, the love of my life, my second love of my life, Abriella. And then 15 months later, we welcomed our second daughter. Yeah. And we've, you know, been connecting and getting from together over this time and like growing in our path, always learning, growing, changing, ups and downs. About eight months ago, nine months ago, I started on the path of like something was going on with my daughter. And I actually got her in August of last year assessed and diagnosed with autism, which has been like the biggest bracha in my life, knowing what's going on with her and having an actual answer as opposed to just having questions and feeling validated around that. Oh my gosh, the Yad Hashem of like this whole process of like fighting to get her into good therapies and be building the knowledge and calling LAUSD and just like all the different things that we go through for our children, learning like, and also mourning the loss of who I thought my child was supposed to be. She's never going to go to a regular school and be, you know, in honor roll and everything is going to be the same like every other kid. Like the pain of that and now like, the menucha that I'm starting to just now get from this is like where she is, where she needs to be and seeing improvement. It's like just amazing. So my life is crazy full, like so much, bracha, like so much challenge and so much. My husband's like, why don't you get a job? I'm like, literally, I have a full-time job. Your job ends at six or seven when you come home. I'm up until one in the morning folding laundry and then six o'clock a.m. in the morning when our kids wake up. That's a, a six hours sleep. A few things, a few quick things. Homeless people. Yeah. My, <laughs> my thoughts are if you are actually homeless but non-addict, then mm. you go get a job and then you get a home. If you're homeless, it's because you're an addict. And if I give you money, you're going to go and use. Am I wrong? You know, I always thought that. And I just recently saw like a YouTube short or a TikTok, which was saying like, who are we to judge? 
Like we're like, if they're going to go use it for drugs and alcohol, I'm not giving them a dollar. When we have a hard day at the end of the day, what do we do? We go home and we have a glass of wine, right? Watch TikTok. <laughs> and watch TikTok with our glass of wine, right? I mean, I don't, but I'm saying the average person has a glass of wine, no? So to take the edge off or people go exercise for please. sure but I, i'm the reason that i'm saying is because it, it really opened my mind because i was the person that was like totally an absolutist where i was like i'm not giving you money if you're going to use for drugs i just don't know that i have the i'm not i'm not god i'm not going to tell you what to do i hope that you would go use it for i don't know a haircut to go get a job interview of course i don't want you to go use drugs and alcohol but if i'm going to give you a dollar and i'm and you're going to go use it on you what you're going to use it for that's what's going to happen if i have a sandwich or a bag of chips unopened of course i'm going to give them that that's how i roll you know in general so yeah there are a lot of untreated addicts in the streets and there also are a lot of people who are unfortunately in really, really desperate places. And it's very sad, you know? You're also in LA where there's an overwhelming amount of homeless people. Oh my gosh. It's very hard. I have one more question. Sure. Is there sure, an sure. underlying, an addict is always an addict. How do you trust? Well, you say you, you don't trust yourself. You know that you need somebody else to handle your medication after you had your babies. How do you trust your spouse if in that case? Once I know he's an addict, it's yes. a hard one. It's a hard one and it's ongoing. It's the same thing that happens with yourself is that you, your trust begins to grow with every moment that you're given a reason to trust, you know? So every day that goes by that he, that you do what you're supposed to be doing and he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, it builds a trust between you. But the initial building of trust once it's been broken is very, very, very hard, very hard. Like I needed to track his location, if he didn't answer his phone after two rings, like we're talking really, really hard. And anyone who's a spouse of an addict knows exactly what I'm feeling. Whether a using addict or a sober addict, you know, it's not only the people that are using because like we are, we're paranoid. Well, you don't always know if they're using. You don't. And the, the bottom line is you need to do what you, so I also went to Al-Anon for a long time, which is a program for this specific like people who are friends or family members of people with addiction, learning to detach with love, which is what I had to implement at certain times in our engagement, separating and giving ultimatums. But at the end of the day, it's really like whether or not this person, I'm never going to know for sure, absolutely for the rest of my life that my husband's not going to use. I mean, I am going to do what I need to do. I'm going to support him and give him everything that he needs in order to hopefully make a strong and good decision day by day. And then Hashem is just, in charge. <laughs> That's really it. And if God forbid, if it ever does come out that he does use or that he does, you know, need help or whatever the case, let's cross that bridge when we get there. I'm not alone. Life's not going to be over. I still have two kids that I love and I'll take care of and I'm not going to use over it. So what are we going to do to fix it? Nothing's the end of the world. You know, everything can be worked on. If there's any message you have to share this week of Hanukkah that we're releasing this episode, together with the music video, what would you like it to be? I mean, I think it goes along with the whole idea of Sanika, of bringing light into the darkness. If you have darkness in your life, if you see darkness in others, if you're going through a dark patch, you have the strength to get out of it. And it's not going to be only you that's going to do it. Like Hashem is giving you the opportunities around you. All you have to do is look. 
and all you have to do is reach your hand out and there is someone around. And if you don't see them, look a little harder and look in places that you don't think that are not really obvious places. Maybe the person doesn't look like someone you'd connect with or maybe doesn't seem like the person who has what you need. But if you really look at them at people, you can really always find Hashem is really always speaking to you and giving you all the answers that you need, you know, through others. That's the whole point of Yiddishkeit is connecting to Hashem through others. Shana, thank you so, so much. Thank you for all your patience with my questions. I really appreciate this conversation. It means a lot to me that you came on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's like really such an honor. I wish you much, much, much Hatzlacha in all of your endeavors. Amen. Thank you. If you have a personal story to share and would like to share your story on this podcast, please do not hesitate to reach out. As of 2023, I am offering sponsorships on this podcast. So if you would like to get your message out there, I can help you spread it by talking about it and linking to it with this podcast. Next week, we will be completing the Aliyah series with an episode with one of our listeners of the show. And look out for the new music video. Thank you again so much for all your support, for all your kind messages and feedback. See you next week. Happy Hanukkah.